Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. As I was thinking about uh, what to preach about um, this weekend, uh, a, few, a few events of the past week kind of caught my attention. Um, the first part of them coming from the liturgical calendar and the other part coming from uh, events happening in, in our society. And um, I kind of thought there would be a good opportunity to preach what would technically be known as a sermon, which is based around a topic versus a homily, which draws on the reading. So it's, it's, it's timely every once in a while to depart from the readings and to focus on a specific uh, topic. And I, and I thought these two sort of things that uh, I was reflecting on from this past week sort of fit together to help understand a little bit more. And I kind of started touching on this a couple weeks ago, to understand a little bit more the, the place and time that we're experiencing in history. So to sort of help all of us situate everything that's happening kind of in our culture in the broader arc of, of church history as a whole, because I think that's going to be really, really helpful for us to know how to navigate the present time in which we're living and the, and the years ahead. So the first thing that got me thinking about this was the fact that this past week we celebrated three martyrs all of whom were martyred under the same Roman emperor, a guy named Diocletian. Diocletian was sort of the last of the big uh, persecuting emperors who would target Christians. And he was at the very tail end of, of the period of persecutions of Christians in the late 200s and the early 300s AD. He was emperor for around 20 years. And it's estimated that he, he ordered put to death somewhere around 20 to 30,000 Christians throughout the empire. So not a huge number, nothing like uh, what the 20th century saw in terms of violence, but, but still a sizable number of, of Christians were put to death under him. And we celebrated three of them this past week. The first on Wednesday was Sebastian. Some of you may know his story. He was a Roman soldier. He distinguished himself by his bravery in battle and was elevated to what would be the elite military unit in the Roman Empire called the Praetorian Guard, and as a member of the Praetorian Guard, somebody eventually uh, pointed him out as a Christian, so he was sort of publicly denounced, and then he was commanded to be um, martyred by means of being shot with arrows. So if you're familiar with Christian art, oftentimes you'll find images of St. Sebastian just, just full of arrows. He miraculously recovered uh, from that martyrdom attempt, was nursed back to health, went to find the Emperor Diocletian encouraged him to repent and to receive baptism. Diocletian said, no thanks, and I'm going to make sure that you're really dead this time. And he, he ordered him beaten to death. And so that, that was uh, the martyrdom of, of St. Sebastian. The second martyr that, that was under Diocletian was St. Agnes. We celebrated her on Thursday. Her story is very remarkable. Um, she was about the age of 12. Um, when she was martyred, so just in a, sort of an extraordinary courage, uh, story of courage. It was typical 
In Roman culture at the time, if you were a girl to be married off around age 12, 13, and Agnes was part of a noble family, um, and so she had all these noblemen as suitors, um, sort of trying to win her family's permission to marry her, and Agnes did not want to marry anybody but a Christian, and, and some stories kind of make it out to seem that she may also have had a mind to consecrate herself as a consecrated virgin to the Lord. Whatever the case may be, she was not uh, excited about these suitors. She turned them all down, um, and they got upset about that, denounced her, uh, and then she was uh, tortured in a bunch of various ways before eventually being beheaded. Um, so extraordinary courage from, from a 12-year-old girl. And then the third martyr that we had this past week was just yesterday, a guy named St. Vincent of Saragossa, somewhat lesser-known figure, um, he died in the same year as St. Agnes, and he was from Spain. The, of course, the town of Saragossa still exists. Spain was part of the Roman Empire at the time. And he was a deacon uh, in the church in Saragossa. And um, he was ordered, as was the case, if you were denounced as a Christian and you were a cleric, um, the way they would, they would ask you to apostatize would be to burn scrolls of the scripture. So if you were a deacon or a priest or a bishop, they would, hand, they, would, they would go into your church, take the scrolls of scripture that you had, hand it to you until you throw it in this fire. And if you did that, uh, then you would, your life would be spared. But if you refused to burn the scripture, then, then you would be killed. Um, Sebastian and Agnes most likely um, were sort of their opportunity to, to recant or renounce the faith would have come by way of burning incense before an image of Caesar, before an image of the emperor who was considered a deity. And having refused to do that, they would have been taken off to be martyred. But all three of them would have been given an opportunity to compromise their faith, to renounce their faith, um, and therefore uh, to save their life. And the reason this caught my attention this past week is that they were all martyred um, very, very close to the time when Christianity was first legalized in the Roman Empire. So those of you familiar with history know that in the year 313, it was a, a very significant moment in church history when, when Constantine, a new emperor, legalized the practice of Christianity. And 300 years of off and on persecutions came to an end. Um, and it ushered in sort of a new, a new culture, a new era, a, a, new, a new period in history. Um, that caught my attention because also this week we had several different events uh, happen in our own culture that were sort of signals or signposts that we are rapidly approaching what you might call a, a totally post-Christian culture. So these three martyrs this past week lived at the very end of what you might call pre-Christianity, at least in terms of society being favorable to Christianity. And now we are fast entering a point where you could call our culture, Europe has, has been there for a couple generations, America's kind of lagging behind them, <laughs> thanks be to God. But, um, but we're, we're fast entering a period where you could call our culture totally post-Christian. Particularly what got me thinking of this was, of course, a couple days ago was the, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, um, the 48th anniversary since abortion was legalized. Um, and on that same day, as many of you probably saw, our new president uh, said that he would make it a priority 
during his term to sort of enshrine Roe versus Wade into the law of our nation, into the Constitution. Uh, right now it is, it is not enshrined in the Constitution, um, but, but he said that that would be a primary goal. And when, when I sort of was processing this a little bit, I was kind of thinking to myself, there's no, there's no more clear indication that we have entered or are about to enter a totally post-Christian society than the fact that our culture thinks that it's okay, by and large, um, to kill the most innocent human beings in our midst, right? The, the most recent count is, is 60 million plus children. It's just sort of an, an unprecedented slaughter of innocent human beings. And so as I was kind of thinking about this, um, abortion, by the way, was very common in ancient Roman culture. Nobody really batted an eye at it. Um, the methods were obviously quite crude, but it was very common. It was also common to abandon your children, just kind of unwanted children, just sort of in the woods or somewhere. Um, Christians immediately began to distinguish themselves from the, from the Romans by the fact that they did not do that. Um, and many early writers speak of that. But there's really kind of processing that anniversary on Friday. Um, there's really no more clear sign that our culture is, is pushing um, into this place of what you might call post-Christianity. And I want to, um, well, before I, I get into that, an, another important thing to, to, to note here is that as we enter this place of a post-Christian culture, similar to how these three martyrs um, were faced with an opportunity to either be faithful to the truth and suffer martyrdom or to compromise the faith and to get away with their life, those types of situations, they might not be what we call red martyrdom, which is the offering of your life. They might be first cases of what we call white martyrdom, where you're threatened with a loss of reputation or possessions or a job or so on. Um, but those types of things, as our culture becomes more post-Christian, um, those things will become more common. Already, just in the last couple of years alone, I've had numerous, numerous people come to me, especially in the, in the medical field and in uh, the field of education, asking with very different, difficult conscience dilemmas. Like, Father, can I, can I sign this particular thing? Can I go through with this particular training? Right? Can I, like, how do I approach this complex medical situation? It's gonna get more and more uh, complex as time goes along. And there, it's going to become more and more frequent, in, especially in certain fields of work, um, but in all fields across the board, it's going to become more frequent where our faith is put to the test, where there will be situations that we're not able to compromise or come to some sort of agreement and where we'll have to, we'll have to face um, some negative consequences for that. So that's kind of, that was sort of all mulling in my head this week as I kind of compared the, those three martyrs, us entering post-Christianity, and I want to offer some, some historical perspective on this a little bit that I think will just kind of help us navigate, help us situate where our, our current time frame in history fits in the whole picture of, of church history. Um, I read this great book uh, this past summer, and I think it just came out this past summer or past spring, um, uh, by an anonymous author, um, but it, it's called uh, From Christendom to an Apostolic Age. A fantastic book, penetrating insights into understanding how our current 
a time frame in history fits into the, the broader arc of, of church history. And the thesis of the book basically is, the author says that from the time of our Lord to the present day, the relationship between the church and society at large has taken one of two general uh, trajectories. So there have been times in church history where the worldview, the attitudes, the morals, and the institutions of the church are more or less aligned, they more or less agree with the institutions, the worldview, the attitudes, the morals of society at large. And he calls those periods in church history Christendom cultures or Christendom ages, right? Christendom time periods. And then, on the other hand, you have times in church history where the attitudes, the morals, the institutions of the church are in opposition to the attitudes, the worldview, the institutions of society. And he calls this an apostolic age. And so the whole book is basically trying to wake people up to the fact that after roughly 1,700 years of different degrees of a Christendom culture in Europe and the United States and so on, we are entering in, we're sort of in the transition phase right now, we are entering into an apostolic age, entering into an apostolic age where the dominant worldview and attitudes and principles of wider society are in direct opposition to our understanding of basic principles, our worldview, our morals, our attitudes, etc. Right? And we, we all know this. If we could even if we couldn't articulate it in words like that, we all kind of we all kind of sense this, right? And it's important to recognize that whether you're in a Christendom age or an apostolic age, there are pros and cons to both. There's a danger, I think, for us as we lose sort of societal, institutional alignment with what we believe as Catholics, when that's being lost in the culture at large, I think there's a big risk for us to simply look back with nostalgia and to kind of say like, I wish things would just go back to how they were 50 years, 200 years ago, 800 years ago, whatever you want, instead of embracing the present moment as God having intentionally put us in the year 2021 and wanting us to sort of press ahead, trusting that he's going he's gonna to guide us. So to help us do that, I want to just outline really briefly, there's some pros and cons to living in a Christendom culture and pros and cons to living in an apostolic age. So as we transition very quickly <laughs> into a full-on apostolic age in our culture, um, I want you to know what these things are so that you kind of know what sort of stance to take and, and how to operate. In a Christendom culture, some of the pros are that society is generally more peaceful, right? When society is built on truth about fundamental principles, in general, relationships between members of that society are going to be more peaceful. As those true foundational principles are lost, which is happening rapidly in our culture, society will become more violent. We've seen that uh, just in the past year. So in a Christendom culture, a pro is that society is generally more peaceful. In a Christendom culture, it's easier to raise kids because you can more or less trust the other institutions around that your kids are part of, schools and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
Some cons of a Christendom culture, though, are that it's very easy because sort of the, the mainstream of the culture is aligned with Catholicism, it's very easy to become a hypocritical believer where we sort of profess outwardly that we believe X, Y, Z, we believe everything the church says about this, that, and, and everything else, um, but we don't really live that way. We sort of have one foot in and one foot out. We develop kind of a, a hypocritical attitude. That's a real temptation um, in Christendom cultures. Another temptation is just general lukewarmness, right? When you live in a society where it seems like everything is more or less going as it should, things are more or less aligned with true principles and so on, um, there's not really much of a sense of urgency to become a saint, to live a holy life, to evangelize other people. We kind of lose that urgency and the sense of adventure that should be inherent in the Christian life, often. That's a risk, at least, in Christendom culture. Also, when we speak of the leaders of the church, bishops, priests, and so on, there's a great temptation when you live in a Christian culture to become more of a manager than an apostle, to get sort of caught up just in all these kind of external things and just to sort of like maintain a status quo rather than really push the people you're leading to real holiness. So those are some pros and cons of, of a Christian culture. Again, that's the, that's the culture that, that is being left behind. And I should clarify before I talk about the apostolic age, this leaving behind of Christian culture isn't something that's just been happening in the last 10 or 20 years. It's been developing over hundreds of years. And I'll spare a, a long, drawn-out discussion of sort of how this began in elite philosophical circles in Europe 600 years ago. But just, just tr trust me that um, this is not something that just happened, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years. This decay of Christian culture has been happening for hundreds of years. Um, it's only in the last 50 or 60 years that it's finally trickled down to the general population. And that's why it feels like it's sort of exploding all of a sudden. Um, pros and cons of an apostolic culture, very quickly. The pros of an apostolic age, as you can probably guess, is that it forces believers to be more intentional about their faith. It's pretty much impossible in an apostolic age to ride a fence of any kind. Um, because you're going to be pressured in so many ways to renounce your faith or to compromise it or to water it down. And at the end of the day, you're either going to go all in or all out, right? There's not going to be much of a middle ground. So that's a pro of an apostolic age. That's actually something I'm kind of looking forward to because I have the tendency to like, I don't know, just be lazy about things, kind of complacent. That's, that's kind of my temperament. And so in some ways, I'm sort of looking forward to this fact that there's going to be these, these challenges and, and pressures to like really rise, um, rise up. So a pro of apostolic age, believers are more intentional. Another pro is that um, the church becomes more attractive to non-believers because as the level of fervor and intentionality and holiness increases among us, that will catch the attention of more non-believers who will say, man, those, those Catholics are like, like, they're crazy in a good way. Like, they love each other. They support each other. They sacrifice for what they believe in. They're willing to suffer for what they believe in. They're full of joy that I can't explain because, like, everything against them is, uh, everything is against them right now, but they're still joyful. Like, like 
the faith becomes much more attractive to non-believers um, in an apostolic age. In the early church, first 300 years, thousands of people seeking baptism, knowing for a fact that that could mean torture and death, right? But they sought it because of the witness of, of all these early Christians who were living this intensely fervent life full of charity and joy. So that's a pro of an apostolic age. Kind of an extension of that is there's a higher standard of holiness among the clergy, among the leaders of the church. They become more apostles rather than managers because it's just, there's nothing left to manage, right? <laughs> when you live in a, a full-on apostolic age where you're not even free to practice the faith at all, like there's, there's no institutions to manage. There's no church buildings, there's no Catholic associations, there's nothing. You, all, you, all you can do as, as a, a priest or a bishop is, is is be apostolic, is to be an apostle. So, so the level of holiness for, for the leaders of the church is, is pushed up by default in an apostolic age. Some cons, though, and these are things that we need to, that, I, that I hold out to you to be aware of um, as we enter in rapidly to an apostolic age. Number one, it's harder to raise children. You have to be much more um, prudent and careful about uh, the influences uh, that are around your kids. Uh, friends that they have, schools they go to, you know, you guys know this better than me, but um, it becomes more difficult um, to raise kids in an apostolic age. Also, society is so diffused with errors of all different kinds, errors about the human person, about God, about you name it, that it becomes um, more of a challenge to kind of keep to the straight and narrow, to stay grounded in the truth. We have to work harder for that. Um, because everything that we're receiving, the messaging and so on, is just filled with all kinds of subtle lies and errors. And so we just have to be on our guard more. That's a, that's a difficult part of living in an apostolic age. A last con of an apostolic age is that it's, it's harder to live what you might call a settled, stable life. Um, because there are sort of risks at every turn that, that somebody may lose their job or you know, diff suffer different little white martyrdoms in different ways. There are less guarantees, there's less stability. Um, Catholics may, you know, may be marginalized in different ways, whether that's financially, reputationally, whatever it may be. Um, and so uh, that's a kind of an apostolic age is, is that it forces us to be, become very flexible just in, in how we sort of um, practice the faith. The last thing I'll say, just as an encouragement and exhortation again, um, the biggest thing I think for us to avoid as we enter into this time, this period in history, is to avoid again this, this sort of kind of bitterness uh, mixed with nostalgia and kind of longing for the past, right? We have to ask God for the grace to embrace the time in which we live, which doesn't mean to accept its errors or to accept the evil things that are going on or to quit fighting against those things. That's not what it means. What I mean is, is more of a fundamental just saying to the Lord, Lord, I trust that you placed me here for a reason, that you put me in this time period on purpose, that that wasn't an accident, and I'm going to trust you with that, and I know that, that you're going to give me the grace I need to, um, to persevere. As St. Paul says to the Romans, uh, where sin and evil abound, which is what we're entering into, uh, grace abounds all the more.